brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fallout Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. I imagine that on July 21st, 1991, Eddie Vedder had experienced the entire range of emotions. That day, to him, was his turn for their now famous home shows, but on a much, much smaller scale than they're held these days. I imagine Eddie was part excited to be back in Chicago, the city closest to his birthplace of Evanston, Illinois, and part, I don't know, melancholy for the same reasons. I picture him picking up a newspaper on the way into town at some crappy highway gas station and looking up whether his beloved Cubs were playing that day. And then I imagine him being disappointed that the team was in San Francisco instead of down the street from the club they were playing that night. I wonder if he was expecting to see anyone he knew at the show and if he was psyched to play these new songs with his new band in front of old friends, or if he was nervous. In this episode of The Opus, we're talking about Pearl Jam's first Chicago show. The last time the band would play here before their first album dropped, and everything for them changed forever. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. All right, everybody, come on. Let's go to a show. The last time I was at the Metro was in late February of 2020. I DJed an industry party for one of those boozy seltzer companies. And the band that headlined was an Oasis cover band that had at least one guy from Shiner in it called Broasis. And I enjoyed it way more than I enjoyed actually seeing the real Oasis. It was really fun. The pandemic was just making waves, but people were still going out. And backstage, we all wondered if we should all be crammed into one little room like we were, 
but we were still passing around free cans of flavored hard seltzer to each other like a bunch of idiots. I spoke to the club's owner, who's also my friend, about the show and what was coming up in the spring. Springtime in Chicago is better than Christmas. You go through a long, harsh Midwestern winter, and you come out the other side and everything blooms. Not just the plants, but culture, art. It is really the reason people still live here. But no one could have expected that there would only be a handful of shows left to be played in 2020, and that the club would be shuttered until July of 2021. Everyone had the anniversary shows to look forward to in July, and we'd had over 35 years of them to look back on, so we knew they'd be special. Even for the 37th anniversary, which is a large but relatively insignificant number, we knew even that would be cool, because all of them had been. But looking back, the club's ninth anniversary may have been one of the coolest weekends of shows the club had ever seen. Let me fill you in a bit on the Metro. In the late 70s, a young man named Joe Shanahan, having soaked in the music scene in New York City, opened a club in Chicago's Wrigleyville neighborhood. These days, that area is filled with expensive real estate and expensive strollers. And on Cubs game days, it's filled with extraordinarily drunk people. But back then, in the 70s and early 80s, it was hella sketchy. And in the early 90s, it still wasn't the kind of place you'd want to walk around in alone at night. Gentrification stuck its foot in Wrigleyville, but it hadn't gotten there just yet. When Shanahan came across the Northside Auditorium building, it was already 55 years old, and it was home to a jazz and folk club called Stages. Shanahan opened Smart Bar in July 1982 as a dance club, a devoted time to some up-and-coming genres. This was just a few summers after the infamous disco demolition, which took place across town at Comiskey Park, where the White Sox play. Go, go, White Sox. Lots of dance clubs in town became the opposite of dance clubs after that. But you know how we do? Dancing cannot be stopped in Chicago. And despite Steve Dahl wanting to turn this place into the town from Footloose, music prevailed. From those literal ashes in Chicago, house and industrial music was born, and clubs like Smart Bar and The Warehouse were were some of the pioneers of it, like the late, great Frankie Knuckles, could be found making people work, move, and jack their bodies. In July of 1982, the dance club moved to the basement, and a live music venue took over the main room. Joe named it Cabaret Metro. And the first band to play there was this little act from Athens, Georgia, called R.E.M. By Metro's ninth anniversary, they'd become well-known across the country as a welcoming place for bands on the rise to play for a good-sized crowd. 
and the weekend of July 19, 1991 at the Cabaret Metro was one of celebration. Joe actually texted me last week with a picture of the flyer for the lineup of shows. He never throws anything away. And that weekend was a cavalcade of stars. That era of rock was so much fun, especially here in the Midwest. That ad I sent you, that flyer I sent you, was Naked Ray Gun. It was Urge Overkill. And it was Soul Asylum. And, and when you think about that era, 91, that's all Midwest, basically. It's an, it's an all Midwest sort of headliner. So that's Chicago, Chicago, and, 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 and Minneapolis. And there was the sort of juxtaposition of like how strong Chicago and Minneapolis were at that time between Husker Du, Soul Asylum replacements, and sort of what was happening here in Chicago, which was Pumpkin's Naked Ray Gun Ministry. And so you, you had this, this wide sort of, you know, net over that. So then you also had Touch and Go Records. You also had Wax Tracks. You also had Amphetamine Reptile. You had uh, Twin Tone. So there were, that is like the epicenter of college and indie rock. There are a lot of parallels between Seattle and Chicago's rock scenes in the early 90s. Talent was spilling out all over the place, and the major labels were starting to notice. I think that 88 and 89 were, you know, sort of the, the horses were on the track. By 90, 91, 92, they're up to like nearly a full gallop. You know, as far as like the indie bands had been discovered and they were being signed to major labels. And so the major labels were very aware of Chicago, you know, Minneapolis, Detroit. And so there was the mechanics of like the industry was clearly focused on, on Chicago The Metro being, you know, a room at the time, you know, to paint that picture, Jill, it's interesting because, you know, I would say that we were probably open. Well, smart bar was open seven nights a week and, Metro was probably open five nights a week. And a lot of it was not just touring, you know, national artists or international for that matter, but it was all a lot of local. I mean, we did local showcases every Wednesday and every Sunday. A lot of the Fridays and Saturdays were, you know, were were stacked with bands that became other bands. I always think about the some of the artists that played all four decades, you know. So it was like look, local H was in there, you know. The Smashing Pumpkins were in there, you know, and uh, certainly Naked Reagan was in there. And you know, if I can work from from those three artists alone, I mean, we would fill a calendar yearly with several of those shows, whether they were releasing an EP or a single or just doing a, a secret fan show. There was so much to play with, and I think that uh, the the you know the organic aspect of the local music scene was as as strong as maybe. It ever was. So the question becomes, how did a band from Seattle with no album out get booked on a weekend with some of the Midwest's best? Just kind of figuring out, oh, let's celebrate with our friends in Minnesota from Minneapolis. And that that's where, you know, with Jayhawks and Solos, two of my favorite bands at the time, you know, it just seemed to to make to make all the sense in the world to, to bring everybody together for that. Pearl Jam coming on to that last Sunday show was a a call I took from an agent that 
um, is still their agent, actually, Don Muller, and the desire for this band to be part of basically they had a, a night open in their in their touring and was would Metro be interested in, in having this band that basically nobody knew play? And in our spirit was like, oh, we can help out a band, we can help out some an agent we like, a manager we like, you know, oh and oh it's those guys from Green River. Oh yeah, let's put those pieces together. Oh that's the Seattle scene. We kind of just began to put it together. Hi there. This is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you check out this latest episode of my show... Be sure to check out some of the other great programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including Rootsland, an original story of two friends who take a musical and spiritual journey from the suburbs of Long Island to the streets of Kingston, Jamaica, or Standing BTS, a biweekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY. Oh, and then there's the What Podcast. It's a weekly podcast by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. They're all fantastic. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. Even at this very early stage in Pearl Jam's career, they'd already gotten the sort of reputation for their live performances that draws a crowd. None of them were strangers to the stage at this point, and they were all really young, really hungry, and full of kinetic energy. And since they'd been on the road for the better part of that July, they were as tight as they could be. Now, if you're one of the people who, over the years, assumed that Even Flo's video was shot at the Metro, you're wrong, but you're not alone. Many people thought Even Flo was filmed at Metro because it looked like the balcony of Metro. But there were, there were other clubs in America that had a balcony like Metro. We got the credit for like, oh, yeah, it was shot at Metro. And I, I was not one to say, you know, no. I just, yeah, sure, you know. <laughs> and you know what? I would take credit too. Why not, right? But that credit rightfully belongs to the folks at the Moore Theater in Seattle, another mid-sized early 20th century performance venue. I've never been, but knowing what I know about those sorts of spaces, I bet I could easily find the ladies' room. The Metro holds roughly 1,100 people. And on the night Pearl Jam first played, it was sold out. But very few people were there just to see them. However, if you've ever seen Pearl Jam play, you know just how good they are at engaging with their audiences. In the 90s, authenticity and a feeling of personal connection between band and fan was paramount to a group's success. 
Between this first show and the next time Pearl Jam would play at the Metro just a year later, that realness was appreciated and reciprocated. I think the fans felt they had found a group or a band that they could identify with because of those things that were being felt as young men and women. And I think that is key to their engagement of their audience. And I'm not just giving all that to Eddie, but clearly people were listening to him, listening to what he was singing about. And they knew the words to those songs within a year. I mean, they knew, they knew that set. Not sing along, but clearly they knew what, what those songs were about. And I think that's the one of the things that impressed me so much within a year that that first record was clearly part of the youth quake that was alter- the alternative rock sort of, you know, scene between the N- Nirvana and, and the Pumpkins and, and the Chili Peppers kind of go a different different way because they're they're kind of like a party band, you know. Not saying that they're just a party band, but you know, they 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 represented something a little differently. Where what I think what Kurt was talking about, and what Eddie was talking about, and what Billy was talking about, there was a similar sort of dissatisfaction and teen angst, but like contemporary. It felt like they were our band. July night in Chicago. A packed rock club. No one looking at a cell phone because we just didn't have them then. And all eyes are on the stage for the opener. Five guys wait in the wing for their cue. Eddie Vedder from Evanston. Jeff Ament from Montana. Mike McCready and Stone Gossard from Seattle and Matt Chamberlain from California, at the tail end of his very short three-week run with the band. I've stood in that exact place in that building, under similar circumstances many times before, looking out into the crowd, making eye contact with the sound person in the opposite wing, stomach full of butterflies. I wonder if that feeling ever goes away, when you get to be as famous as Pearl Jam has. I kind of hope not. Lights up. Showtime. Band comes in, basically plays mostly the first record, start to finish, and that was the set. I remember it clearly. It was They were ferocious. Everyone looked around and was like, what was that? It was like a 747 rolling through the room for 40 minutes, you know? <laughs> and then going, wow, okay, Jayhawks, okay, <laughs> you know. Wash. Once. Even flow. State of love and trust. Alive. Why go? Porch. 
The crowd picks up their jaws from the sticky metro floor and figures out how to get their brain to recover from that rock and roll assault in time for the alt-country sounds of Minnesota's Jayhawks. For Joe Shanahan, it was the first time he'd get to see what would become one of his favorite bands. And the beginning of a beautiful friendship that was, for that night anyway, not super great for the bar next door, the G-Man Tavern, which Joe also owns. And from what I remember from that show, I, I befriended Jeff. That was when it was like there was that, that was my moment. It was like I spent time with him. You know, I think we had a couple of beers at G-Man or had a couple of drinks in, in Smart Bar. But, you know, and it was the anniversary. And, you know, we had Solus Island tending bar <laughs> in Smart Bar that night. So everybody was down there having a good time. You know, Dave and Dan were behind the bar, you know, you know, just passing drinks out because they weren't, they were, they were saying, should we ring this up? I said, well, oh, we're way past that. Just, just give the drinks away if someone orders something. Pearl Jam would return to the Metro in 1992 on what was officially the 10 tour on March 28th of that year. They'd been to Europe and back by then, and their album was bigger than they could have ever imagined. For that show, they were playing with equally huge Chicago rockers and their singles soundtrack album mates, The Smashing Pumpkins. And because it was The Pumpkins' home show, part of it was broadcast on the radio. Pearl Jam, recorded live exclusively for the Budweiser Sunday Night Concert on 93 XRT, Radio Chicago. Eddie, on this night, was happy to be home. He also made note to say the person the next song is written about is here tonight before an incredible rendition of Why Go. Heather had made the gig. Billy Corgan, who was wearing a dress, lots of leg on that guy. Jimmy Chamberlain, no relation to Matt. And Darcy Retzke from the Smashing Pumpkins joined Pearl Jam on stage for Window Pain and the Beatles' I've Got a Feeling. And a few guys from Ireland were in town to check out the band as well. Okay, so so that show in 92 here, you two came to see them. And they sat in the balcony and watched Pearl Jam do their thing. And then offered them the tour that following year. I mean, I remember sitting there with The Edge and with Sheila Roche, who was the manager at the time. She worked with Paul McGinnis. She was there. Adam was there. Larry was there. I don't remember if Bono was there, but I know that I know that the other two were there. And they were checking out Pearl Jam. <laughs> the Metro is such a special place. It's my favorite club of that size in the city, and there's quite a few here. I got to give a speech and a toast at the 35th anniversary for the building. I've played there in bands. I've DJed there. I've danced the night away there. Some of the best people I know work in 
a whole bunch of different capacities there. I wish I was there right now. It's where the beginning of lots of huge things have happened and continue to happen. I've seen Prince there, the Foo Fighters, but also bands that no one's ever heard of and who were kind of one and done on those nights. So while this episode was about Pearl Jam in their infancy, it's also a love letter to the Metro and the hundreds of venues like it in the U.S. that have lived through this pandemic and the lack of live music for the last year and a half and risen from the ashes themselves. Like house music coming from the demolition of disco, these clubs aren't the same as they were before. They operate differently, but they're still wonderful and loved and so important. Important to the people who work there, important to fans, and important to all of the Pearl Jams out there on their way to bigger and brighter futures. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next season, and hopefully at a show soon. Consequence Podcast Network. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Obers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.